this is Catherine O'Connell and welcome to Lawyer On Air. If you are looking for inspirational stories about women in law, then this is the podcast for you. Join me and my lawyer ladies as we enjoy a glass of wine after a hard day at work and talk about the world of women in law. It's my passion to share stories of amazing legal ladies who are working as in-house legal counsel, who have law firm roles, who are leading on boards and who are doing law differently. From time to time, I will also invite special guests on the show to share their insights on legal recruiting and tips for getting hired as a successful lawyer in Japan. I hope you will enjoy getting to know these amazing women who I am so proud to share a profession with. I'm glad you're here and I hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode in season four of Lawyer On Air. I'm the host of the show, Catherine O'Connell. Today I'm joined by Yuko Noguchi. Yuko is a director and head of legal at Google Japan GK, and she has been at Google for approaching nine years. She was first senior counsel and then became director in 2018. As you can imagine from working in a global household tech company such as Google, Yuko's responsibilities cover overseeing many Google-related legal issues for the territory of Japan. She is the legal representative on the Japan management team, managing a legal team of 15 members. Her team covers a wide range of matters, including product counseling, commercial negotiations, dispute resolutions, and advice on regulatory compliance. She is also serving on public policy matters in several government committees around internet, intellectual property, and artificial intelligence, and closely works with public policy and communication teams, as well as the business leadership to manage overall company risks. Yuko is an experienced in-house lawyer, and she has distinguished law firm experience. She spent 15 years and for the past few years of her term serving as partner at the prestigious top four law firm of Mori Hamada and Matsumoto. Yuko has built her career on her strong educational foundations. She first got not one but two bachelors of law from Tokyo University, first in 1995 in private law and in 1996 in public law. Then, while she was working at the firm, she obtained her Juris Science Masters from Stanford Law School in 2002, and then her Juris Science Doctor from Stanford Law School in 2006, with a dissertation topic on US and Japan optimal copyright policy in the digital era. Well, Yuko doesn't stop there. She has served on multiple government committees for METI, the Intellectual Property Strategy Headquarters and Agency for Cultural Affairs. She is professionally skilled in nonprofit organizations, and she is also the author of numerous major publications, including the authored book Copyright in the Era of Digital Technology in 2010 and several other co-authored books, as well as articles published in the US Law Review. Since February 2022, Yuko has been serving as the non-executive member of the board of directors at Astroscale Holdings, contributing as an independent officer with legal and compliance background. And she attends board meetings, giving a high level strategic advice on important legal issues, legal team building and risk management. Well, that's phenomenal so far, but Yuko is also very, very busy. And I can tell that 
you know, recently she was a person who was a panelist on a Women in Law Japan legal operations panel event. And she seems to really, even though she's very busy, take everything in her stride and keeps calm uh, and almost seems to me a little laid back, but in a very, very good way. She's also a very devoted mum. Yuko has lots of outside work interests. One of them is psychology, especially positive psychology. Another is cooking, especially having lots of fun with her 11-year-old son, who apparently is very creative as well. And Yuko is a curious traveler and has traveled to 20 countries so far. Well, that is Yuko in a semi-quick summary. I'm really pleased to bring you Yuko as my guest today. Yuko, welcome to the show. Thanks, Catherine. Nice to be here. Thanks so much. Well, we're going to talk today about your career path, influences you've had along your journey, your studies in law, career insights, and perhaps a little board insight there too. And I'd love you to provide some tips and ideas during our conversation that might be helpful for that next generation of in-house legal counsel or associates who are coming up the ranks behind you. Are you ready? Yes, I am. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Great. Well, today we are talking online, but if we were meeting up in person, where would we be? Do you have a favorite wine bar or cafe or restaurant that you love to go to? And what would be your choice from the menu? Hmm. I've thought of this. Uh, I have a lot of favorite places, but there is one Italian restaurant that I love to go um, and probably um, I'll be ordering nice salad and some good pasta. And at the end, I really want to have a great coffee. What would you drink while you were having the salad and pasta? I used to like a bit of alcoholic beverages, but yeah. after I had my son, I kind of tend towards non-alcoholic beverages these days. But the great things about COVID is that a great non-alcoholic beer and sparkling wine and everything actually really developed and they are really tasty. So I really love to have those. I agree with you. I remember having uh, during the, the so-called lockdown and we couldn't have anything alcoholic served, right? At Tokyo American Club, I ordered a non-alcoholic beer and I was so surprised how delicious it was. Yes, they are like really great. So I even started enjoying them at home. It's, you know, it's less pricey and it, it really makes you feel relaxed. That's really great. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. And then I think we, you know, probably can head towards not having as much alcohol these days if we want to. And I love that idea. And I'm trying to find out some other nice non-alcoholic beers and, and other you know, non-alcoholic sparkling wines too. So thanks for that. That's great. How about then heading back into really early days when you were a child? Can you remember what you wanted to be? I always ask people this question. I'd love to know. Right. So it changed over time. When I was in elementary school, really small. Oh, before that, I wanted to be a princess, of course. It <laughs> <laughs> was a really girly girl, I, I think. And I was like really enjoying seeing all these princess stories and stuff. But and then when I hit elementary school, I wanted to be a shopkeeper because one of my relatives um, had a shop and I visited them and I found it kind of nice to serve clients and, you know, sell things. 
and I found it amusing. So <laughs> I wanted to be maybe a cake shop. I wanted to run cake shops or something. That was when I was elementary school. I still remember when I got grade six. Now I wanted to be a newscaster because somehow. I thought the newscaster kind of collect and knows everything about the world, and I felt they were so smart. Of course, now I know that all the scripts are written by somebody <laughs> else, but you know, so naive. Yeah, so I thought, oh, that looked pretty cool. So that was <laughs> grade six. Then I think when I was at high school, there's this kind of a moment where. You know, in this Japanese high school, you need to decide either you take a science major or a social science major. And I was really torn because, on one end, I like English, I like literature, kind of thing. But at the same time, I somehow hate history at the time. Now I find it very interesting. But at the time, I just took it as memorizing in lots of names and years and everything, and it was a bit painful for me. And I rather liked math and science. So I thought, like, yeah, I'm doing better on those subjects. So I should go to a science major. And so I went and asked one of the science teachers, you know, at high school, saying, you know, I'm really thinking of taking a science major. Because I'm really interested in computer. So, obviously, at the time, I'm already interested in computer and information technology. So, the teacher went, Okay, are you interested in hardware or software? And I really didn't know what he was saying. So, I even didn't know what's the difference between software and hardware. So, I couldn't answer that question. And the teacher looked very puzzled. So I realized, okay, even though I'm interested in all these subjects, maybe I'm not too interested in the technology itself. Maybe I'm more interested in the social impact of it. And then I was wondering and bump into a principal of high school. And he said, like, Yuko, hi, how are you? How's going? And I said, I'm still. Deciding on whether I should take science major or the social science major. And he said, like, Oh, you should come to my room and we should talk. And、mm. we sit down. And he was、uh, obviously, you know, before he became a principal, he was a social science teacher. So, of course, obviously, he had a bias. But somehow he thought, You know, I know you fairly well. I really believe you should. Go to、um, social science and have a bigger impact. I mean, technology, of course, has an impact, but you should do something about social policies or something. And I somehow felt convinced. So that's how I got into legal department later. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, I think that is my. Pattern in my life, so to speak. Yeah, from the very beginning, I have to think a lot of things before I make a decision. So, in my life, I had these 
deciding moments. And then you do this pros and cons all the time. But I think I came to realize later on that it's actually when you're making an important decision, it's actually better to go with your intuition rather than all these tricks of pros and cons and which appears to be better than, yeah, we can get to that later. So I got into Tokyo University and I figured actually law is kind of closer to math in a sense that it has a core principles. And then you apply, like you apply certain concrete numbers, you get a concrete answer just as you do that. I think law is similar in a sense that it has a lot of principles that well thought and you apply concrete cases and then you'll get the answer. And then you go like, okay, is this a fair conclusion at the end? And I found it more useful than economics. So I found like, okay, I want to be more useful and want to be more, you know, closer on the ground in terms of, you know, facts. And I want to be more programmatic. So that's why I decided to get into law. Mm, very interesting there's so much in there right that you had this sort of it sounds like a lot of influence from teachers rather than perhaps family but family are probably in there as well but the teacher who sort of said what hardware or software it's like almost you want that teacher to explain what the difference is right it's not expected that you would know it at a young age and interestingly you know I have a elder sister and when we were young, my sister was more do everything more quickly and precisely type of thing. So by a certain age, my sister was doing this while Yuko isn't doing this yet. So naturally, my parents started to think, mm, maybe Yuko isn't that smart or bright or anything, but she seems to like being a princess and whatnot. So maybe she can be a little princess to somebody else, right? Being meaning a great housewife. So that was what my parents first thought of me. And so instead of sending me to all of these Kumon or, you know, cram school or anything, I was like helping my mom cooking dinner. I went to ballet school, like drawing school. So that was how I spent my younger age. And then the grade five, six teacher kind of turned around to my mom saying like, um, mother, I think Yuko is actually pretty smart. So you shouldn't set her up to be a housewife but maybe something a little bit more my mom told me later that she was really shocked and so i remember my mom said so do you think she could uh, get into this you know high school that's said to be the best in the city and the teacher went Oh, no, she could even go better than that. I was living in the Kanagawa prefecture at the time. 
And of course, you have school restrictions. So my mom was asking about one school that was best in the jurisdiction I lived in. But for a really, you know, um, smart kids, there is like a really small seeds where people go across the jurisdiction and apply for other, you know, better school. So she said, like, she could even try to get to the best school in Kanaga Prefecture if she really tries hard. And I think my mom was hugely shocked by it. Did you actually get into that Kanagawa school afterwards? Or what happened? What in- ended up there with the school that you got into? Yeah, so ended up going to the best public high school in Kanagawa Prefecture. The teacher kind of set a goal for me. So, of course, that school parent uh, meeting that my mom had with the teacher was only the two of them. I wasn't in the room. But afterwards, my mom, of course, she was so surprised. She told me that, right? And... That was a pleasant surprise to me as well. Okay, so this teacher that I like very much, she believed I could do it. And that that kind of set a goal for me. Okay, I really want to aim to try to get into this high school. Mm. So when I hit junior high, I was already really hardworking in terms of exams and things because I really wanted to see whether it's true that I could get in, right? And funny enough, sending some students to those high schools is somewhat our prestige for the all the public junior high as well. You know, all the principals from the junior high school get together and kind of discuss who should apply for this school. And so it's kind of an honor for the principal to have a really high-performing student. Mm. So again, I was feeling some expectation from the teachers because obviously our interests match in that sense. And then when I got to high school, then of course, every high school, it's important which university the graduates went to. Did you then have that similar situation happen in order to try for the Tokyo University exam? I think so. So a lot of graduates from famous private school get into Tokyo University, many of them, but not so much from a public high school. Mm. And so, of course, all the you know, teachers would be excited if any of the graduates got into Tokyo University. And you did. Yeah. So I remember, for example, like many of the teachers actually offered me to do like a full, not really a class, but some of the English teachers said like, you know, if you want to translate this English piece of paper and you know, and send it in my way, I could check and or, you know, the history teacher said you should take a look at the entrance exam 
questions that Tokyo University asked in the past, and you can draft the answer and you can bring it to me and I can check. I mean, there were a lot of investments from the teacher's side as well. <laughs> yeah, it was very great. And I really felt also, I wouldn't call it a pressure because in a sense, I was doing it because I wanted to. But of course, I really don't, didn't want to disappoint any of them. So I really worked hard. Wow. Okay. So you got the exam. You passed it. Yeah. So that was <laughs> what I, I was really focused on until I passed the bar exam. And then I felt relieved because I don't have to study anymore. <laughs> Right, you got into Tokyo University and then you kept going and kept going and kept going and then you finally did your bar exam. But in between there, you had other things that you were doing as well, right, with your study in the US. Tell us a bit more about that with your Tokyo University and doing those two kinds of law that you did, public and private, and then heading off to the, the, the States. I was really searching for what I want to become during this time. And as I said briefly, I really found those legal lectures somewhat intellectually stimulating. I know some students really didn't like it at all, but I kind of found it interesting that there are core principles in law and it has histories, why it has emerged. It's kind of a collected wisdom, you know, based on a history. I found those processes very interesting. And I have to tell you, I had this vague image of what I want to become ultimately. And it was this idea of I want to be a specialist of something that I could contribute to. And then, you know, we work with other specialists in other, you know, discipline, and then we collect our wisdom to make the society better kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that was one vague idea that I had. And the other thing, as I said, is that since high school, I really have this image of computer becoming more and more impactful in the society. So I was shocked to see some of those computers, I kind of had an image back then that computer would at some point in time become smarter than people maybe, and it should have a huge impact on society and people. And therefore we have to find a way to make it useful for the society, but not harmful. And I want to be part of that effort. So I already had that image when I was in high school. And that's why I went to my science teacher and asked about computer. And maybe that was partly an influence I got from my father. Although he was not a computer science, he was more of a chemical science scientist. He was a science researcher at the beginning, and then later on, he worked on patent. That's what I got from my father that I, you know, got into intellectual property law that is obviously heavily influenced by my father. Because I found 
okay, so I still like to hear about pure science stories. And by doing patents, you can hear from all these clients about the very cool cutting edge stories about the science and can learn about those technology and you're still got to pay by listening to those lectures. So I really liked doing patent when I first got to a law firm, but getting back to the university age, I had that vague idea of that, how, you know, I want to be and how I want to contribute to the society or what kind of things I want to do. But and then I didn't know which occupation would provide me with that opportunity to do that. Is it to become a legal professor or should I become a bureaucrat and crafting policies or should I become a judge or maybe a, a private practice lawyer? I didn't know the answer, and therefore I was looking at all sorts of directions, really confused. But um, the choice of becoming a bureaucrat dropped rather early because I went to one of those recruiting sessions by the ministries, and I found the working culture is actually pretty demanding there like long hour works and of course the salary isn't high enough and it sounded like a pretty male dominant culture there so i felt like ooh maybe i wouldn't enjoy my day to day life there so even though the idea of crafting a social policies or even a law sounded pretty appealing to me i didn't want to be there. So I was deciding between becoming a law researcher, stay on in the university and keep doing research and thinking about the principles, or I take a bar exam. So I remember one day I went to the room of Professor Nakayama, who was actually a leading intellectual property a professor at the time at Tokyo University. And I told him, you know, I'm deciding between these two. He said, I know you're taking a bar exam already. I really want you to work hard on it. And then if you pass, you should at least get out of the university and see the real world in action before you really decide and come back to be a researcher. Because he said, I also took a bar exam. I had an option of going to the Legal Training Institute under the Supreme Court to become a lawyer in Japan, but I didn't do it and I decided to stay at the university and I never got out of it. So he said, you know, I'm doing my job really hard. I am fully aware that whatever the professors in the ivory tower say could be actually a bit unrealistic, 
or, you know, I hear those criticisms all the time. So what I try really hard is to meet with business persons, really trying to understand what's going on on the ground and try to be mindful of the real reality of the society. And I'm always doing self-check whether I'm not one of those, you know, professors in the ivory tower. But I kind of regret that I didn't go to the legal institute. I didn't take the chance to look the real world. So I really want you to go and see the real world before, if you want to become a researcher, come back and do that in the university. He wanted you to do something that he hadn't done, right? And he could tell that it would be good for you to step aside from the study and university environment and go and do something a little bit different. Right. And that was kind of convincing to me, but I went and talked with another professor and that professor was a tax law professor. I had zero interest in tax, <laughs> but because I, you know, I took his seminar I was relatively close to him, so I went and asked him about the same question. Now I don't know what I want to do. And he said a very interesting thing that later on had a big influence on me. He said this, okay, imagine a beautiful spring day. It's sunny, it's not hot, and the family next door is preparing for a picnic. You know, it has a picnic basket and great food in it. And then they, you know, cheerfully go out for a picnic. And you're in your room looking at that neighbor from the window and you have piles of articles you have to read in order to finish up your low review article. If you can still sit down and happily read that and keep writing your article, maybe you want to become a researcher. But if you want to join them in a picnic, <laughs> then maybe this is not for you. Then mm. I was really shocked to hear that. I'm one of these people that have to go to a picnic. It's a beautiful day, right? <laughs> and But at that time, I really didn't understand what he was trying to get to. So I thought like, hmm, maybe, you know, this professor, I could totally see he's a type of guy that he could happily sit out of the desk and keep writing his hmm. uh, legal review essays. But I'm thinking like there should be many different types of professors and maybe he's one of these types but um, I'm not obviously but that doesn't mean I couldn't become a legal researcher so that wasn't really a deciding factor but that somehow you know stayed in my brain and then getting to the Stanford story, um, following Professor Nakayama's advice, I went to um, the Legal Training Institute to get the bar. 
you know, Professor Nakama said maybe minimum two years to finish up the legal training institute. Back then it was two years. Maybe it's good enough to see the world because in that process, you will see how, you know, you'll have a peek on how, you know, the courts are operating, how the public prosecutor's office are operating, and you'll have a little bit of experience working for a law firm. So you will have a little bit of everything. It's a real experience. And if you think you're ready to come back, you could come back. But after two years, I felt, yes, I've seen the courts, I've seen the public prosecutor's office, but I was interested in law and technology. I wanted to do intellectual property law. I didn't see that intellectual property law in action, right? So that's why I joined Mori Hamada and Matsumoto, because that was one of the law firms that had a really established intellectual property division. And I really liked the partner there. So I asked, I really wanted to work in that intellectual property division. And if you would let me do that, I want to join the firm. And the firm said, yeah, why not? So that's how I started working. I really liked it. Like so many other legal associates, I worked pretty hard. I worked till 1, 2 a.m., you know, not every day, but many of the days. But it wasn't very hard for me, maybe because the people that I was surrounded by were all great people, and the file that I was working on was very interesting. So I had a lot of fun, but then, of course, this idea of whether I want to be a researcher was haunting me. So that's why when this many of the, you know, the law firm associates go and get LLM, I intentionally aimed Stanford because I think it was a year or two before Professor Lawrence Lessig wrote this book called Code. And it was a really phenomenal book. And he was at Harvard at the time, but a year before I went to Stanford, Lissick moved over to Stanford. So I really wanted to see him in action. So that's why I went to Stanford. And of course, master degrees one year. And after one year of master degree, you sit for the bar and then you go to your friend law firm for a year to do, you know, an visiting associates to build human network before you come back and start working again. So I had my law firm arranged already after one year of master degree. But when this master degree was approaching to an end, I had this feeling that, oh, I just took a look at what kind of topics are in there in this world without knowing not too much about them. And so I secretly applied for the doctoral degree. 
<laughs> of course, you know, my law firm is already arranged, so I couldn't tell it to the law firm. So I secretly did it. And then I knew that I got accepted. And also, you know, Lawrence Lessig agreed to become advisor. Really? Yeah. So I said, like, wow. okay. And partly the reason why he kind of interested in me is that he had his sabbatical coming up next year. Mm. And then he already had an arrangement to come to Tokyo University for six months to do his research. Mm. So he's like, oh, you're from Japan. So why don't you come with me in Tokyo and do the research with me? You can help me with my research. Perfect. So I was like, wow, right? That's once in a lifetime for that. Exactly. That combination of the universe to come together like that for you. You couldn't say no. Right. <laughs> Normally I was thinking like, you know, I would defer this. I would go to the law firm. I will see I, whether I like it or not, or whether I really can forget this opportunity and want to come back and then I'll do it. Right. And that way I don't have to upset the law firm, blah, blah, blah. But this cannot wait. Right. I have to decide now. So I still remember the day I picked my phone and I called, you know, the partner in charge and said, like, I really want to do this doctoral degree thing. Mm -hmm. But of course, before that, I was thinking there hasn't been anybody that's done it before. So I was, you know, running the simulation of, oh, what if after trying so hard, I couldn't get the you know, the degree and the law firm, of course, couldn't wait and they fired me. So I don't have a job. I spent all my savings on this degree. And at the end, I either couldn't get the degree or I barely get the degree, but I couldn't find a job. And, you know, I lost everything. What would happen? I had to do that worst case scenario simulation. But I think like, mm, maybe then I at least can speak English and I still have a bar. So maybe I can have my tiny little low firm and I still could survive, right? That was kind of my worst case scenario. So I said like, okay, at least I won't starve. So <laughs> maybe I'll, I'll just have to do it. So I told the law firm that I really am excited. I just can't let it go because of this Tokyo University thing. And of course, law firm wasn't happy because it's not easy for them to arrange a visiting associate thing. Mm. So they said, okay, so what would you do if I say no? That was the question from the partner. And it sounded to me like, okay, if you can't stop doing that, I'm going to fire you, kind of. Mm. It sounded like that to me. But I thought, if I say, well, if you say no, I will give up, then I should give up, right? Because that's what he's suggesting. So I had to say, if the law firm said no, then I had to quit and do this. And the law firm partner went, okay, I understand where you are. I'll discuss internally and come back to you. It sounds 
like he's testing you to see if you're really, really, really interested in that or just thought you wanted to. And, and if you really showed that complete devotion to wanting to go ahead, right, and do the PhD, you'd think, I feel like he was trying to test you to see if you wanted to do that. And it sounds like you gave an answer that made him realize, yeah, she wants to do this. Yeah. So obviously that was the partner that I trusted the most. Yeah. And that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure he had to do a negotiation for me. But a few days later, he came back to me and said, like, okay, we'll give you two years. So, you know, we'll let you stay, but we're not going to pay you. So you have to do it on your own. Um, so no financial support, but we'll let you stay with our firm and you have to finish it in two years. So I said, like, great, thank you so much. But after two years, of course, I couldn't finish it. <laughs> I, I have to call them and said, like, I need one more year. And, the, and they said, like, well, we've already invested it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> enough. So I can wait you for another year. Sounds like Yuko's toughest negotiation ever was this particular negotiation. Right. But I was living in a dorm and Bay Area, it's quite expensive right now. It's really crazy, but not so much back then. So, of course, I was really um, have a modest life there, but... I could survive with my savings um, from the years that I, you know, worked at the law firm. And then I still was really excited about this legal theory and how the law is emerging, you know, given the very rapid social changes and, you know, how to think about good public policy versus bad public, bad public policy would have a real impact in society. I've, I've seen all that. But and then I realized I really like to think about those things. But when you want to be a low researcher, things wouldn't stop there, right? You have an opportunity to write all your ideas, but then you have to read every single legal article in that area, and then you have to do the citation to avoid plagiarisms and all that stuff. And that part was like so painful for me because I I already have what I ha- want to say. But when you look at the, you know, U.S. law review articles, every other page, your main body tech is like one third of the page and one two third of the page mm. is filled up with all the footnotes. So true. So true. Yeah. Yeah. And that part was like so painful and then I certainly realize and remember that low professor analogy about sitting in the library doing that thing versus going out on a picnic. Mm. And I really felt that and said, like, oh, he knew, you know, especially during the young age, that is you have to devote yourself to. And if you cannot enjoy that process, you can't be a legal researcher. That was what he was trying to tell me. I really had the full understanding of his advice and I really appreciated it. And I decided, okay, this is not my thing. 
Yeah, because for him inside the room at the desk was his picnic. It wasn't that it was picnic is better than sitting at the desk. It's just that that kind of picnic he was doing, looking at so many different articles and finding the footnotes and creating that, that was his picnic. But your picnic might be the one that is actually happening across the the way where you can have maybe some more freedom or you're, you're doing something different. So that's interesting that it finally occurred to you there what he meant and how significant that story he told you was. That's just brilliant. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm always telling people when you're trying to choose an occupation or whatever, it's really important to think about day to day, right? For example, a lot of people join a law firm and then they quit after a year or two, some stays on. I've never seen a lawyer quit their job because they wanted to do tax law or finance and they couldn't do it. It's more like, oh, I I just can't get along with the partner I was working with. You know, that is more of a real story. So you really have to respect what your strengths are or what you enjoy doing day to day. This is what's your ideal or how you want to contribute to the society. It's all good. But without knowing yourself very well and without being able to enjoy what you do every day, you won't be good. So after that dissertation, it was actually quite painful for me. I'm I'm glad I've done it. But after that, I was like so happily ready to go back to private practice. <laughs> Funny, right? How long were you there then? Because then Google comes up, right, for you as a job. There's lots of people waiting to hear because this is this is really such a lovely and very interesting kind of journey through the buffet of your life and your career of the things that you've chosen to devour, to taste uh, on your way to coming to this sort of Google role, which you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like the culmination of all of this has come together, your love of computers, your love of study, but not too much. And everything seems to have come together for you to get this role that you're in now. Yeah, agree. And, you know, when I was a university student, Google even didn't exist, right? Yeah, of and course. Then, yeah. And then I spent my days at Stanford from 2001 to five. So 2001 to two, I did my master degree and two to five, I did my doctoral degree. And then I was still finishing up my dissertation, but my visa was expiring. So I decided to come back home, uh, come back to Tokyo and start, you know, working at the law firm first a bit kind of part-time-ish so that during the day I can use my brain on something else. And then during the night, I was like madly finishing out my dissertation. So while I was doing my research and I was with Larry in Tokyo for a while, and he encouraged me to do like the, you know, on the ground research. So I went out and did a hearing with a bunch of people. Some of them included um, policymakers from the bureaucrats, 
um, some of them from the business owners or the companies. And that's how people started to recognize that, oh, there is this person called Yuko that's doing uh, research at Stanford on this topic. So when I finished my dissertation and came back to the firm, that's how the government reached out to me and asked whether I was willing to sit on one of those panels for mm. policymaking. That must have made the firm feel pretty proud of you, though, right? To be invited to that kind of panel? Yeah, I think so. Looking back, I was very naive at the time. One of the partner told me and said, you know what, you go doing a great job at writing a memo or doing a great research is just only half of your job. Mm. The remaining half is to get a good fee and you still have them come back to you. That's the latter half. And I totally get the first half. I was so naive at the time that I couldn't see the full picture. And of course, law firm is a business, right? I, I couldn't really enjoy doing the latter half. So after I became a partner, now I can understand a bit more about what the partner was saying to me. And he was, you know, he was really truly giving a useful advice if I want to be a successful partner. But I just didn't enjoy doing the latter half of the job. I enjoyed more on these government meetings, but of course you spend hours and you've just been paying a very little money. So, you know, business-wise, it's not a great business. It's just intellectually really interesting. I wanted to provide a different views that other people couldn't see. After I came back, Google and YouTube was my client. So I was advising them um, on the Japan law issue. And so that's how I came to join Google because my predecessor was asking, why don't you come over to this end? I think he was doing that for two years or so before I finally decided to move in. I somehow felt, no, 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 I don't want to become in-house. I love working for the law firm because that way you can work for many different clients and get to see different people. Also, when you're in the law firm, you're kind of independent. And that's why I was able to serve for government committee. If you join a company, then you become a company person, right? Whatever you say externally is more like a company talk. And that way you kind of lose independence. So I was like pushing back, but, and then I got married. Um, I had my son and it was about the time that my son was three that I started to think whether I'm really enjoying my low firm partner days. And having this researcher in mind, I asked around a lot of people, especially a female partner with kids, and asked how they, you know, how they strike the right balance. And I found, again, this is not about right or wrong, or, you know, there isn't really a one answer of how to do it right. It's more like, What's your preference, what you want to do? 
working at the law firm and keep serving as a great partner requires a lot of time and commitment. It's a fact that a lot of partners would outsource a big portion of their child care. Some people say, oh, it's bad for the kid. Um, it's so sad, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think that's right. As long as you have a really caring nanny or grandma or whatever that's a great caregiver, your kids would be fine. I was 100% convinced by it. It's more whether you want to devote your time more on work or you, whether you want to be the caregiver yourself and want to be with the kids. So it's not about your kid, it's more about you. And when I realized that, I said, like, I definitely wanted to be more closer to my kid. And therefore, that's partly a big reason why I moved in-house. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it goes back to what you said earlier, too, about knowing your strengths, knowing what you enjoy, knowing yourself well. So you moved over to Google. So this head of legal team for Japan was publicly posted. Mm. And he said, you know, now I see real applicants and I started to interview them. So this is literally your last chance because <laughs> the next person won't quit, right? For like for a long time. Next years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're 1% interested in this job, then you, you just have to apply. So I said like, okay, I have to apply. <laughs> but, you know, at the beginning, I wasn't really sure. But while I was going through the interview, I got more and more interested in the company itself because all the interviewers were really interesting. Looking back, like they kind of fleshed me a little bit of the legal tech and management they said there is this global um, litigation database and you got to learn not only Japan, but all the issues around the globe and what the court is deciding and everything. It's like a really global company. And I thought like, wow, that's probably way more exciting than in the law firm. I was with the law firm for 15 years already. Mm. I kind of know in and out, right? I thought like, okay, now this is narrow in a sense that it's only Google, but it sounds like it's broader in a very different way. So this could be exciting. So what I did is that I went and talked with a headhunter that contacted me a while ago and said, um, I wanted to talk with you. Of course, they, they thought I was looking for a job. And when I went and talked with her, I said, like, now I have this offer. I don't know whether I should take it or not. She laughed at me and said, like, okay, so you already have a job, but you want my advice. But she was very, very kind to me and said, like, look, you're, you know, already 15 years into the law firm. Um, you're already a partner. So that means if you want to go in-house, there is like only 
a small number of seats that would satisfy you because you don't want to be like a just individual contributor, right? You want to be a manager at least, or you want to be a, you know, a general counsel of a decent company. And those seats are limited to start with. And then you have like a particular area of industry you want to work for. Think about it, it's only a handful of company that would be able to offer that job. And imagine when is the next time that the, you know, the lead position would be posted. So you have to think about that dynamics. So she was very, very kind to let me see the picture. And so I was like, yeah, that's true. I have to try it. And funny enough, I wasn't still 100% sure. I went and talked with my low, you know, the low firm partner, my senior female partner that I really liked. You know, I'm like wondering about what's best for me because this is Google I really want to try. But if I moved over and thought it was a mistake, come on, can I come back in two years? <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah, funny, right? <laughs> she said, I don't want you to come back in, two, in one year because it looked very bad on you, right? You tried something new and it's kind of obvious that you didn't like it. So I really want you to stay for two, three years and know enough to come back and tell, oh, I know this is how it works in in-house, right? So even though you hated it, you have to, you know, stay there for two years, then we can talk again. So finally, I'm kind of okay. I'm ready to move over. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, my goodness. It's so funny how you said that, though. But I, I do really want to say how that uh, recruiter was just so useful for you to give you the unbiased view and you know there's nothing in it for her because you'd already basically were on the fence teetering over towards in-house but she gave you such good advice uh, and so true right that the you had that diamond waiting for you and there's limited access to the diamonds uh, in that kind of role so here you are in google now and you've stayed for longer than three years haven't you yeah, I did. So <laughs> I really liked it. Yeah, what do you yeah. love about it? And tell me about your team. How do you manage your team? Because you've got 15 people there. What are you loving? Because I just see that you really love your role um, and that you are really now in that kind of area where it's really making you draw out all of those things that you really enjoy and all of your strengths. And I saw that in action recently when you were on the panel. Tell us about what you like about your job now and the people who you have working with you? Yeah, there are a few things that I really like about Google. One is, of course, you know, the people that I work with. There are a lot of great people and I learn from everyone. And Google really invests in people. So there's a, a lot of great trainings that they offer um, with professional, you know, external coach and stuff. And I really learn a lot, not as a lawyer, maybe, but as a people, I learn a lot. And those wisdoms, I think I can carry everywhere. And it really made me a better person. 
I really enjoy managing or nurturing people. That is something that I found. It's my strength. And of course, all the legal topics, it's cutting edge. It's right in the center of all the debate. And then, of course, it's just purely, I mean, it's interesting, not sometimes, you know, funny, interesting, right? Um, it's sometimes puzzling. It's sometimes, yeah, all sorts of issues, some very exciting, some a bit concerning, but it's the area of, of interest from my high school days. And I really like being in the center of that debate and see where this information technology is going, how it's impacting on people, of course, good and bad, how we could maximize the good side of it while addressing the negative side of it. And then, you know, the working culture is very flexible. I still remember when I first joined Google and then I got to introduce myself um, in this leadership forum that I sit. And then I said, you know, I'm Yuko. I came from the law firm. I have a three-year-old son. So sometimes, sorry, you know, I have to excuse myself because I have to take care of my child and maybe that's a trouble for many of you so i apologize in advance that is what i told them and the one of them turned to me surprised and said oh you call that's of course you know totally fine everybody has family and they all understand so what you have to apologize for i don't get it you know you don't have and and then she said that is the culture probably you're coming from, but this is a very different culture here. We all have families, and of course, family is important for everyone, so you don't have to be sorry for it. And I was really Quite positively surprised. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Very nice. How do you enjoy then? You say you love nurturing your people who are working with you, right, and your team. How do you do that? How do you nurture as a head of legal into your team? Do you encourage them to do what they like, what they're interested in? How do you do that? Right. So I have a few principles and many of them Google taught me, but one of the principle is, is to play with your strengths. So I have a diverse um, sets of talent in my team and to some extent I intentionally mix um, a different type of people with different strengths because I think you're at your best when you're playing with your strengths. And if you have the same amount of time, it's better to devote yourself in developing more on your strengths than fixing your problem. Everybody needs to know their strengths. And of course, you need to widen your you know, your skill sets. So I will give them challenges when they're ready. But there are certain things that you just cannot fix. For example, I was told that there are two types of people when you are in summer break and you're given a homework. I mean, Japanese kids got homework during the summer break. Those people would just have to finish it right away to enjoy the rest of the summer. And then there is this 
other type of people, you drag it to, till the end and you just won't be able to energize yourself to get it done until the deadline is really close. I'm obviously, I'm obviously the latter. <laughs> and <laughs> I know I'm not too proud of it, but they told me that is something that you're born with and it's fundamentally cannot fix. So you shouldn't punish people on their style. It's just a different style. It's okay as long as you meet the deadline, right? But you need to know yourself well. And, you know, sometimes you need to work or I have to couple people, certain type of people with a different strengths of people to make it a stronger team right? And you also need to know yourself. I tell my team, sorry, if you send me an email and don't hear back from me, that's because probably I either sleeping on it or I got tons of email that it fold, you know, between the crack, just, you know, just send me a chat and remind me to catch my attention because that's how I work, right? Mm. So, one thing I was told is that there are certain things like that you can't fix and you shouldn't be punished. And those people have different strengths, for example. Like people who finish your homework early, of course, they are more, I don't know, well-planned, right? And but, but people like me who leave things till the very end, they are often actually better in crisis. Mm. Because the people who follow the plan are actually get more worried and not just, you know, strong when things wouldn't go as planned, right? While those people would tend to be bitter at crisis and, you know, firefighting and fixing. Mm. And those things, to some extent, you can learn by working with people but um, there are different strengths. So it's not that one side is better than the other. It's just a different strength. So the same goes with, for example, some people are really good at commercial negotiation. Some people are more good at, you know, dispute resolutions. And I think it's healthy that you're exposed to different types of work, especially when you're young, because you could find your new strengths by doing that. So I would push people from time to time to be exposed to a new area. And when I do that, I'll always couple with somebody who is really experienced so that they could, you know, learn each other. And I also really be mindful to keep their portfolio healthy in a sense that I wouldn't fill their portfolio 100% challenging files, right? You'll get maybe 30% of the challenging thing, then you'll need to get do a, you know, spend a lot of energy on that one. You also have to have 50% or 70% of the job file that you're so familiar with and you feel good by doing that. Because, you know, that way you can keep your balance right. It is very interesting. And I love how you've, you're putting these cross strengths teams together where there's different people doing different things. And I think it sounds to me like you are letting those members of the team 
know what their strengths are and what they bring to the the challenge that's happening so that people aren't just brought together and then they're thinking oh that person's different to me or they never get anything done they're always last minute or oh those people are always so ahead but they've missed these other few points or they're never any good when something quickly raises up its head so it's are you as part of your nurturing letting people know number one you're telling them that strategy i'm giving you 30 percent challenge and giving you 70 percent that's your usual work so you get your balance are you also helping them understand that the different other people in the teams have different strengths so everyone kind of knows what their strengths are yes sometimes i say that aloud sometimes it's more like obvious from their background for example i have out of my team i have two members who are english native and japanese language is their second language and you know they have different cultural backgrounds in my one-on-ones with them we tend to talk about those things how they're finding themselves um, what they're enjoying i wouldn't necessarily ask them what do you think is your strengths because Mm. but i often ask what do you enjoy the most and what do you think you thrive and you know that question people can easily answer yes some people especially i find this more in female than you know male some people really are self critical mm. and they're raised in that way maybe i was once put in this female director only training where we talked about sustainability because one of the challenges is at Google of course in terms of diversity we want to have more female leaders um it's one thing to promote these people but and then having them stay in the role is another challenge so they have this training for you know female leaders you know wellness and sustainability and they really talked about gender differences there um like the culture we tend to be brought up with or you know or just based on statistics females tend to get depression way more than male globally and that is probably because female tend to be hard on ourselves more than male um just a statistic so for us there are you know variety of people and then i was told for example that think about instance where you make a mistake right those female tend to go on and on and on criticizing yourself you know oh how bad i was that i decided to do this and this why i didn't see this this coming and i should have been more wise or careful blah 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 you go on and on right and then the teacher told us think about your best friend and and imagine the same exact thing happen for your friend what would you say to your friend you wouldn't go and say like oh stupid you why you didn't see that right you would more go and say like oh you know i don't think a lot of people would be able to see that because it's you know depending upon this and this condition which is more 
unusual. And after that, you did your best. So I think you were just unlucky, right? But now that you're working hard to fix it, it's like good enough, good on you. That's probably what you would say to your best friend, right? So think about those two different words you would say. And then the lesson was that you really have to be your best friend. Mm, exactly. Be your best friend, right? You wouldn't say those things to others. Why, why should you say it to yourself? Right. And so we were told that you have to have your mentor inside you that's kind of watching you. And if you catch those self-critical moments, just take a deep breath and then just let go of all these, you know, criticisms and you just focus on what's next. Mm. And I think those skills are important for females who are really struggling. And if you're in a leading position, it's just your job to make a decision, right? And it's inevitable that your decision would get criticized later. Nobody would be able to see the future. So sometimes it's just that you have to make a decision to move things forward. Otherwise, things wouldn't get solved. So it's your job to make a decision. But and then what if it goes wrong? And if you just cannot take that risk, you can't be in a leadership position. So you have to be prepared to get these moments that you felt you might made a mistake and how you recover from it is a really important part of your role. And I think this one, it's both for female leaders as well as male leaders, but I was told that male leaders tend to think that things went wrong because of external factors and not because you didn't see anything. Uh, it's more like ten, female leaders tend to kind of internalize that. That's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah. How about then you call some tips then for people to succeed like you are at working in-house as a lawyer? What sort of tips might you have? Have you got, for example, three top tips for people or things actually to avoid as well, some pitfalls to avoid? My first thing is that you would be far better off you pick the topic that really interests you. Even though it's a great company, if the things you're working on isn't very interesting to you, it's not as exciting. So first thing I would say is to follow your passion if possible. I was advised by my friend lawyer in the U.S. She also moved um, from a law firm partner to an in-house role and she was very successful. So I sought her advice. She said, you need to wait for the right job, right? Um, it's not that every job is available anytime. So you have to take a year or two to really get the right one. And, and until that, you know, until you find it, you somehow need to survive at the law firm, but you just need to get the right one. That was her advice. Um, looking back, I think she was right. The other thing is, 
I know this could be a bit hard, but if you can, I think it's really important to see the people that you work with because the same company and the same type of role, your day to day would be very different. Or, you know, the, the day to day would be influenced by the people you work with and the culture that the, you know, the company has. So one of the things that I'm really, really mindful of uh, when I hire people is really their culture or the mindset. And even though I found like a super talented lawyer, if I don't like the culture that person has, I would never hire that person. So I cannot emphasize more that in order for you to be happy, um, you have to be in a happy team. I look at a lot of people come and go in the company, Google or anywhere else. I would say half of the reason, half of the people leave the company because they don't like their manager or the team or people. It's not about the job. It's more like the people, right? This is sometimes hard to know before you join the team, but that is important in my opinion. Mm, very interesting. And when you say culture there, do you mean their, their culture? So things that they believe in or their values or what they say to you when you're interviewing them that gives you that idea of where they are and how they will sit in your team and whether you can sort of mesh together or not. Is that what you mean by culture? There is one thing that I look particularly, which is when you make a mistake, can you be open and candid? For example, don't do the dirty play of turn around and point other people for mistake and you kind of escape. There are people like that and I wouldn't blame those people because probably they are brought up in such a culture, right? Whatever the mistake you made, you're not allowed to make mistakes and therefore you have to work really hard to escape from the responsibility type of environment. You quickly develop the skills and there are all sorts of arts to do that, I know, but if you get one person like that into your team and that person started to play that game, then it ruins the entire culture because if you get one person started to play that, everybody started to, to do right. the same. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I, when I interview people, I see how open they are about the mistakes they are made in the past or, um, you know, some learnings out of it. And interestingly, some people turn their success story into a failure. When I, for example, ask in an interview, what is your mistake you made in the past? One person said to me, for example, looking back, my biggest mistake was I studied so hard during before the bar I even didn't meet one person because I was so busy preparing for the bar. And, and so uh, I, that upset a lot of people. And it's not, he's not really telling a mistake, right? He's just kind of like appealing in a very different way how hard I worked on the bar. Mm, I see what you're saying. Yeah. 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 
And right. he's not actually saying it was a mistake. He's saying, look how hard I work. You should understand that I work so hard that I even don't meet with other people. I exclude everything else in order to focus on the job that you, you would give me. That's what yeah. he's trying to persuade you with, perhaps. Right, right, right. Or some people, even though I'm asking the mistake, they say, I came very close to making a mistake, but at, at the very last end, of course, I'm so smart. I could catch all these and I fix everything. So at the end, it wasn't really a mistake, but it was, I came very close. Those people, I mean, mm. if you live for 25 years or 30 years or even 40 years, how come you cannot make any mistake at all, right? Yeah. So I, I'm not really asking about what exactly was the mistake or what exactly was the learning. I was, I'm more looking at how open they are about yes. their mistakes. And some people can tell a very convincing, heartful story about the things that they experience and how they kind of try hard to learn from it. So I tend to like those people who are really open and candid because those are the people that's really easy to work with. And when something happens, I can have a really straightforward, open question, you know, open conversation about what went wrong, for example, and how we could do better. Google would never punish people by making mistake. I think that is one of the strengths that our company has. Because if you are punished by making a mistake or something went wrong or not as planned, then you just can't take a chance, right? Taking a chance means that at some percentage of the thing would go wrong. And if you're punished by doing that, you cannot be bold and innovative. Innovative. Our focus is more like, okay, how can we fix it? What we can learn from it and how we can do better next time. Right. You're encouraging think, that and being more, not forgiving or understanding, but you're encouraging them to take that chance. And if it didn't work, learn from those bits and pieces of that problem that didn't work in the solution uh, process. So that's what you're doing there, right? Right. And I think that's one of the reason why our company is so successful, because in many of the Japanese organization, it's not true, right? While you're in a certain position, if there is something that goes wrong, then you're out of the race. Mm. And that makes people more careful. They don't want to challenge new things. Those are all because you're punished by it. My goodness. Well, let's head in then to the final Super 7 questions. It's a quick fire round where I ask every guest several questions to wind up the show. So I know you said to me before we started, and I said in the introduction that you've visited 20 countries, but if you could live somewhere else in the world outside of Japan, where would it be? Hmm, that's a tough question. I would probably pick either California or Hawaii, maybe. Mm -hmm. That's nice. Is that for the, cult, the culture or the kind of place that it is, or relaxed, easygoing? Nice weather. Yeah, nice weather. Obviously, I know the language and kind of the culture. And there is a lot of uh, natural 
you know, places or scenes nearby to relax. So maybe those are the factors. Okay, second question is, can you share with me uh, a book that you're reading or have read or a podcast you've been listening to that you would recommend? The book that I recently read, but it's in Japanese, it's called Kokoro no Moten, or It's a Blind Spot of Your Mind in English. It's written by a Japanese, you know, psychologist or psychology scientist. And it was very interesting. It's a really light book. Um, it has like 80 questions. So it says like, okay, think about this question and you're given this and this. What would you say? And then there is like two or three pages of explanation about mm. how your brain works. And your brain, all our human brains had some tendencies and it's kind of interesting. One of the things that I found interesting, for example, is that people who donated a lot and did a lot of good things tend to do a bit of a bad thing later. Mm. Interesting, isn't it? Because mm, you... Very. Yeah, very interesting, but it's a statistic, actually. And so what I got out of it is that, okay, so human being is a mix of good and bad. It's interesting that a truth is that a people is not black and white, you know, yes. it's kind of a mixture of both. And if you're forced to be only white, you just can't stand with it. And I think it's very interesting to keep you sane or strike the right balance, like when you're raising your kids. And, you know, a lot of kids when, who were preparing for the exam, you have to be all white and studying all day. You just can't be like that, right? You have to have some break doing games or, you know, looking at silly movies or YouTube videos or whatnot to relax yourself to strike a right balance. So, you know, there are so many other interesting statistics and it's all based on research and data to explain how your brain works and i found it very interesting wow it sounds amazing i wonder if there's a similar book in english or if it will eventually be translated but you've got me thinking yeah it sounds very interesting so talking of books though yuko if you were going to write a book tomorrow or in the next by the end of the year <laughs> what <laughs> what would you no i'm not putting pressure on you what just incidentally <laughs> if you were going to write a book what would you what would you write it about I don't think I'm not yet ready to write on any law and technology type of book again. Could be a cookbook uh, with your son, how to cook with kids. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun. Um, you write a fun book like that, sounds like that would be lots of fun to me. Yeah, or I could kind of have a white essay about all these funny moments in the family. Yeah, it was like, goes like, yeah, I know that moment and what I did well, what I didn't do well, I wish I could have done differently in an old funny way. That could be yeah, something. That sounds yeah. like I'm sure that's the kind of essay or collection of essays that your library teacher, she would really love to hear those. Okay. Um, what's something about you that a lot of people do not know? 
So maybe that I'm so deep into people's psychology is something that I don't really openly talk about. I don't know why I get into this, but for example, when you started to realize that it's everywhere, I mean, marketing is all based on people's psychology. If you know how our brain and our memory works and how heavily we rely on people's testimony in all the criminal, you know, procedures and how inaccurate our memories are, it's almost shocking to us. And so when you started to see all that, it's just so interesting and it would have some impact on how we should design our product. If you think about our work, I started to see a lot of commonalities between nurturing your team members and raising your kids. And I wouldn't claim I'm the best of world because knowing one theory and being able to follow that is a different story. <laughs> but I, I just find it very interesting. I get that. And one last question. What kind of advice would you give to your the younger version of yourself? Maybe that one that was thinking about princesses or the one a little bit older than that. What kind of advice would you give to your younger Yuko-san? I would say you really should follow your instinct and don't think too much when making a, especially a big decision. Because I somehow feel like choosing a job or getting married to someone or um, deciding what you do, you really have to enjoy that. And it would never come from the tricks of pros and cons. It's more like a feeling and not really coming from your brain. So there were times that... Um, I was so bound by what I should do and what I shouldn't do. And to some extent, it really helped me get to where I am because i that's how I worked so hard. I studied so hard. But at the same time, looking back, I wish I could be a bit more relaxed and enjoy every moment of the way. I know it's kind of tricky because if you party too much, you won't study. So it's a right balance to make. But especially, I cannot emphasize more if you have like a really fancy, prestigious place with a really high salary, but somehow you know in your instinct that you wouldn't enjoy every day, then I really don't recommend going there. Or at least you should get out of it a few years later. So following your instinct. Wow. Okay, Yuko, that's great. Great advice to yourself. And I think anyone else listening today will, will take that on board. Thank you so much for coming on Lawyer On Air. And my goodness, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you and to hear you. I've been stopping and listening to you today as you've meandered through your wonderful journey of your career, your progression, your decision making, uh, all those people who helped you along the way to, to direct you or give you pointers and told you stories that would keep you balanced and that you would remember and think about later. It's just been incredible listening to you. And I really thank you for taking time to share your wonderful story. 
Yeah, thank you, Catherine. So, yeah, I really enjoy that too. And and sorry, maybe the other thing I wanted to tell to people is that just don't try to figure things out yourselves, but seek out for advice with people. Because as you said, I talk with a lot of people and I was so helped by a lot of people's wisdom and their experience. So I would love to do the same for younger lawyers, but, you know, it's always just very helpful to talk with others. I agree. I agree. You don't always have all the information or knowledge and you don't have to take everything on that someone tells you. You can just soak up the information and and put it in there in the sieve as you sift through and, and find the information that's really going to work for you. That's so good. So how can listeners connect with you? Yuka, what's the best way? Can they do that on LinkedIn or other social media? What's easiest for you? Maybe your email address, but up to you. Yeah, maybe you can send me a LinkedIn message. And um, I have to warn, I, I'm not really super active on that platform. So maybe my answers would be delayed, but I'll get back to you. We know that you answer things a bit later in the stage. You've already told us that. So <laughs> well, that's great. We'll put your LinkedIn details in the show notes. So uh, we'll finish up there. And thank you again so much for your courage to come on. And I hope it inspires other people to think about coming on and telling their story as well. And for my listeners, I hope that they will also subscribe to Lawyer On Air and drop us a review when they can. Um, it's really great to have that. We've got people who do that. Uh, right on Apple Podcasts. They also send out reviews on Google Podcasts. They do all sorts of things for us. And it's really great to hear them talk about us. And so most people can, or more people can get to know about the show and listen in and get some tips as well. So do go ahead and share this episode, everyone. Uh, enjoy it. Send it to someone who you think would enjoy getting some information out of it and be inspired to live a wonderful lawyer, extraordinary life. That's all from me. See you on the next episode. Cheers, kampai, and bye for now. Thank you so much for listening today to this episode of Lawyer On Air. I really hope that you were inspired by the story you heard and that you discovered something new about women in the law. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. And if you can think of even just one person to share this episode with, that would make my day. I invite you to connect with me to talk more. Jump on over to LinkedIn or Instagram where you can find me or send me a message via my website contact page. That's all from me today. I look forward to seeing you right here on the next episode of Lawyer On Air. Cheers, come pie, and bye for now.